Please turn in your Bibles to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And verses 1 through 12. This is our scripture reading for today. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Please turn now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Picking up where we left off in Mark, we will be dealing with Mark, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Mark 1 verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray his blessing upon its preaching. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word. We are your people. This word was inspired by your Holy Spirit. And by your grace, we have been regenerated by that self-same Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, now that you would send the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to understand this passage of text. And we pray these things for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by suggesting that we take note of something noteworthy about the opening verses of Mark's Gospel. These initial verses of the Gospel of Mark, covered in the last sermon and in this one, these verses are a kind of a glimpse behind the veil. This glimpse is afforded us by Mark and by God, the divine author of Scripture. After these verses, we will be dealing with what is more generally seen and heard among men, for the most part. What follows this behind-the-scenes portion will include a great deal of mystery and confusion and bewilderment on the part of human beings who come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we readers, too, we might be bewildered by these accounts that follow in this gospel. If Mark had not afforded us in these initial verses, where we can be made to understand what the meaning is, the full significance, the spiritual and divine meaning, the eschatological significance of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Mark is like the book of Job then in this. It provides us at the very outset with a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the supernatural and otherwise hidden significance of the events that are to follow in the book. With that in mind, let's begin at verse 8. I've divided the passage into three parts. The first part I have called the Spirit from Christ. The second, the Spirit upon Christ. And the third, in you I am well pleased. So part one, verse eight, the Spirit from Christ. You may or may not recall that the last sermon passage in Mark, we actually closed with an examination of verse eight. Mark records here that John makes a distinction between his baptism by water and Christ's baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is to say, John baptized with the element of water, while the Holy Spirit himself is the substance, if you will, the that or the who Christ baptizes us with and in. You will also recall, perhaps, from the last sermon, that Mark was very keen to display how Jesus of Nazareth is not only the Messiah, that he is also Yahweh himself. That Jesus of Nazareth is God Almighty himself. Well, here in our verses today, 
Mark is at it again. In telling us that Jesus Christ baptizes us in the Holy Spirit instead of water, the evangelist is once again revealing the Lord Jesus Christ to be God Almighty. And this is because Yahweh is revealed in the Old Testament to be the one who would pour out the Holy Spirit one day upon his people. Please listen to this quote from another place in Isaiah. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. For I will pour water on thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And here the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 39. I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And consider Acts chapter 2, a New Testament verse, quoting Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In those days I will pour out my spirit. So Mark continues to assign divine functions and prerogatives to Jesus. First, as we saw last time, by showcasing John, the forerunner, prophesied in the Old Testament to precede the coming of Yahweh, then in the titles and Old Testament language that he applied to Jesus, then as here, in the revelation that Jesus is the one who will baptize with, that is, he will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us. And this is something that the Old Testament tells us that God would do, that God alone could do. The Lord Jesus Christ, Mark is affirming once again, is God himself. He is God Almighty. Now before we move on to consider when and how Jesus does this, how and when he poured out his Holy Spirit, that is how and when he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, Let's take this opportunity to discuss, for a moment, the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism. Now there is and there has been much discussion in the church and debate about the various modes of baptism. Some in the church argue for total immersion baptism, while others maintain that sprinkling with water or pouring of water are also appropriate ways or modes of administering baptism. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and this is true for many churches, we maintain that any of the three modes of baptism I described are biblical and therefore appropriate. And this is because of the several things that water baptism signifies. Baptism is a physical act, using a physical element, but that is meant to picture spiritual realities. The spiritual realities baptism signifies are several. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we have just seen prophesied 
is actually meant to be pictured by the mode of pouring water over the one being baptized. In fact, Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit is described exclusively in the terms of pouring, isn't it? And water baptism, as we know, is a picture of spirit baptism. So we believe pouring is an apt mode of water baptism because it signifies that spiritual reality. Namely, this long-promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible explicitly uses the term sprinkling when it discusses the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this passage from the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Note how the sprinkling of clean water serves as a picture of being made spiritually clean. So we believe that sprinkling is likewise an appropriate mode of water baptism because the scriptures use the language of the sprinkling of water as a picture of our spiritual regeneration. That is, our regenerating and our cleansing by the Holy Spirit. Now, the mode of total immersion baptism into water, that pictures another spiritual reality. It pictures our being buried and raised with Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Note how the Apostle says that in baptism we were buried with Christ into death. In a total immersion baptism, the person goes into the water and then comes up again, as if from the grave, as did Christ. So we think all the, uh, our interpretation of the scriptures is such that we believe that all three modes of water baptism are, biblically speaking, okay. Because each of them points to a different spiritual reality pictured by water baptism. That is, to a different aspect of what is being spiritually signified in water baptism. So to sum this part up, sprinkling pictures the cleansing from sin and regeneration by the Spirit. Total immersion pictures are being buried and raised with Christ by our spiritual union with him. And pouring of water over the one baptized is a picture of the spiritual reality in Acts 2, and Mark 1, of Christ's pouring out his Holy Spirit upon the church. Before we move on, though, let's consider for a moment that, and close with that, this point, with that portion of Acts 2 that I'm talking about, to see how and when Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John promised he would. To see how and when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. As we all know, this, the passage in Acts 2 is where we 
are told about this great event of Pentecost. So let's turn there together. I would just read it to you, but let's go there together because I want you to be able to see the verse as we discuss it briefly. So please turn to Acts 2, and we'll be looking specifically at verse 33. I'll start at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's take note of a couple of things in this verse. First, the Pentecost pouring out of the Holy Spirit is how Reformed theologians say, and Peter seems to be saying here, that this is when Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of John's prophecy back in Mark. John baptized with water, but, he said, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost is the redemptive historical fulfillment of that promise that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Second, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is something that is not repeatable. How do we know that? We know this because this prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit is tied in this verse to Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God and his receiving the promise of the Father. Those things are not repeatable. They have only happened once. These things will never happen again. Will Christ ever again be exalted to the right hand of God to receive the promised Holy Spirit? We believe it is clear that he will not. And as those things will never recur, so too will the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit never recur. So this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a unique event in redemptive history. And it cannot be repeated no matter how hard or how badly we want to repeat it. No no matter how badly we want the awesome events of Pentecost to be repeated in our own experience. And this hard and fast position of the Reformed churches is the plain reading of this verse. I say that because of the Greek grammar that we find in verse 33. Without delving into the minutiae of the details of Greek syntax, suffice it to say that the way Luke has structured this verse, that is how Luke relates the verb pouring out to the participles of Christ's being exalted and having received the Spirit, We are given to understand by these rules of Greek grammar that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is indeed solidly tied to these one-time, unrepeatable events, namely the exaltation of Christ and his receipt of the Holy Spirit. Now this one-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost may not be repeatable, but that is not to say that we have no part in the Holy Spirit baptism. If you were here, you may recall from the last sermon in Mark that every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
This takes place at the individual Christian's conversion. From 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Our baptism in the Holy Spirit occurred when we were baptized into one body, the body of Christ, the church. And when this happened, we were personally made participants in, whereby the Holy Spirit incorporated into that one-time event when Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. And so, congregation, it is here in Acts chapter 2 where we find the time and the place that John was referring to when he said back in Mark 1.8 that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And when we come to believe and we are joined to the church and are baptized, that's when and how we are made to drink of that same Spirit. That is our participation in Pentecost. Our personal baptism with the Holy Spirit at conversion which pictures our spirit baptism. Now let's return our focus to Mark chapter 1 and move on to verses 9 and 10. Mark 1, 9 and 10. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. With these two verses, we will start the second part of today's sermon, the Spirit upon Christ. So what is the significance of this, these events in, related in verses 9 and 10? Well, it is very significant that the Spirit came to rest upon Jesus like this. The Old Testament had some important things to say about the one upon whom the Holy Spirit would rest. The one on whom the Spirit of the Lord would come to rest would, for one thing, be the heir to David's throne. Listen to this from the prophet Isaiah again. Part of our scripture reading. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. King David was the son of Jesse. So this language about a shoot from the stump of Jesse is how that people would speak of family trees. This event in the Jordan is recorded then, so that we might understand that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is shown then to be that descendant of Jesse because the Spirit rests upon him in the Jordan. And this is a biblical way of telling the audience that Jesus is the long-awaited heir of King David. Consider these words as well from Isaiah, chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, 
in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Isaiah 42, verse 1. And this servant of the Lord spoken of here in Isaiah 42 is sent to bring forth justice to the nations. And as we know from the New Testament, our Lord would inaugurate that program with the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Isaiah passage adds that this one on whom God's Spirit would rest, that is the one in whom the the soul of the Father delighted, and note that Mark says both of these things of Jesus, God's delight in him and his spirit resting upon him. This language in Mark reveals Christ to be that servant of the Lord of Isaiah's prophecy and the fulfillment of all the servant of the Lord prophecies in those passages of Isaiah. Consider a passage that is found in Luke's gospel and applied to Jesus Christ. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So that the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ at the Jordan is a display of, as we can see, very important truth. Jesus of Nazareth is therefore the shoot from Jesse's stump. Jesse being King David's father, so Jesus is the long-awaited son of David and the king of Israel. We also learn comparing scripture with scripture, that this means that Jesus of Nazareth was the servant of the Lord of Isaiah. But this moment recorded in Mark of God the Holy Spirit descending down upon Christ through the heavens, describing the heavens as being torn open, this is also God's way of responding to Isaiah's plaintive plea that God would rend the heavens and come down to his people, as we saw in our scripture meditation this morning. Now let us move on to consider why our Lord underwent this baptism at all. Think about it. Why would the Lord Jesus Christ need to undergo John's baptism? Which in verse 4 is revealed to have been a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Scriptures teach, and the church maintains, that Jesus was sinless. He need not repent, because he had no sins that required forgiving. So why did Jesus get baptized by John? The answer to that potentially puzzling question is in today's assurance of pardon. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot to take in in that verse. I'll repeat it. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Note that Paul reveals to us in that verse that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. And brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. The rest of the verse shows us how this is the gospel. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This language communicates Jesus Christ's self-identification with us who are sinners. God's wonderful plan for our redemption involved God the Son coming into the world, adding a human nature to his divine nature, and identifying with all those lost and sinful humans who believe in him. And identifying with us in this way, he receives our trespasses upon himself and imputes his righteousness to us, the righteousness of God being reckoned as ours. And this is why in Paul's theological shorthand, Jesus who was sinless became sin for us, so that in him we might become righteous in God's sight. By virtue of our union with Christ, by faith, our identification with him, because of that, God the Father attributes his righteousness to us. So Jesus underwent this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as part of his identifying with his bride. And this identifying is actually at the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the good news. Let us now move on to the final part of the passage and the closing section of the sermon. Verse 11. With you I am well pleased. Looking again at verse 11. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Before disclosing with a discussion of how there is yet more gospel in today's passage. I'd like to consider something else first. Note with me here how we have in this brief space the revelation for our benefit of something about God that was veiled for a millennium, the Trinity. I do not suggest that the truth about the triune nature of our God was non-existent in the Old Testament or was even completely concealed in the Old Testament. But the fact that God is one in being yet three in person was not clearly revealed to man in general, nor even to his own people in particular, until the coming of Christ and the writing of the New Testament. Here in our text today, we have the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all being showcased for us. They are all revealed to be intimately, personally involved in the outworking of this glorious plan for our redemption. But to that final point now. The prior section concerning our participation in Christ's righteousness and his participation in our sinfulness, who knew no sin himself, sacramentally signified through the rite of baptism, and which rite we see we have in common with our Savior, 
This all leads us to this wonderful display of the gospel in verse 11 with this simple language. With you, I am well pleased. Congregation, fairer words were never spoken by God unto man. With you, I am well pleased. God the Son came into the world to be pleasing to God, but not for his own sake. The Son is always pleasing to the Father. So he did not come into this world for himself, to increase with favor with the Father for his own sake. He was in the world, and he was there in the Jordan, still wet with the waters of our common baptism, because you and I so desperately need that verdict from God. This stated statement uttered by the Father from heaven to his only begotten Son, surely it encouraged our Lord as he undertook his messianic mission. And just as surely this statement was also uttered so that we might understand that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, who was about to be cruelly treated and despised and ultimately crucified as a criminal, was in fact God's chosen. That he was God's anointed. That despite all that, he was David's greater son. But God the Son did not need to come into this world to be encouraged in this way. This statement, like others in the New Testament, that was made in the hearing of Jesus' disciples, was for our benefit. It was so that you might know that if you trust in Christ's merit and his blood for all of your acceptance before God, this statement by God is meant for you even today. With you, I am well pleased. Praise God, let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious plan of redemption that you have devised to save a lost and sinful race by reuniting us to your Son, imputing our sins to him and the cross, and imputing his righteousness to us through that union, such as is pictured between the bridegroom and the bride. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to understand these things and to embrace them for ourselves, to put our faith in him, and so be justified before you, and so find ourselves in him, the recipients of this glorious statement, with you, I am well pleased. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.